friendships whilst living in student halls and residences, and how maybe this might have some significance in the role of friendship in co-producing shared living, particularly for those in mobility who might be interacting with and within new social and living environments. So friendships in this context can be intrinsically tied to relationships with place and processes of placemaking and well-being and rely on the ability to enact social identities among people like us. Um, hence, it's important to scrutinise how embodied and collective emotions and interactions may shape friendships and subsequently inform identities, experience, support, habits among young people. So, in terms of the, um, these geographies, so research suggests that interactions within households have adapted in lines with changes to our contemporary immobilities and mobilities, labour structures and access to technology. So nearness has become less important within the postmodern home, with a growing tendency for connections between householders to be structured more by ephemeral bonds than strong familial networks. As McDowell argues, the home increasingly is a space marked by the co-presence of people united not by ties of blood and affection, but by economic exchange. And that's quite a crucial point for, for the research that I'm talking about here. And perhaps McDowell's caution is essential in informing the complex, non-familial ways of contemporary living that I'm going to be outlining as part of this paper. Williams, for example, suggests how non-familial co-housing may facilitate transferences of social capital among cohabitors that provide the building blocks for different forms of community cohesion. Other, more heteronormative understandings of interpersonal relationships within the home have been subverted to emphasise the diverse ways unrelated adults might experience a sense of at-homeness in shared accommodation. Added to this, Jarvis argues against proximity and social interaction as being the sole proponents of convivial co-resident accommodation, proposing instead that harmonious and sustainable living also includes carefully cultivated and orchestrated time-space negotiations within households and between the sharers within those households. So, for example, Moss and Richter um, suggest that daily routines uh, may not have clear spatial or temporal organisations for shared living spaces for um, young students. With activities being performed in the same environments at different times of the day, offering little opportunities for differentiation or structure. So halls of residences can be sort of deemed as these 24-hour spaces for the majority of things that go on in students' lives. What punctuates many of these debates, though, is how the individualisation of identity or a conflation of the self has become synonymous with these forms of peer sharing. So here we might think of researchers um, thinking about ideas of Giddens, Beck's and Bourdieu's views on postmodern lifestyles, especially in terms of young people, um, as being developed through self-identity, independence, risk and choice. Hence, we approach our lives self-reflexively, intensely scrutinising, monitoring, evaluating, re-evaluating, configuring and reconfiguring our identities according to our own projects of self-identity, as suggested by Reimer and Leslie. And crucially, this paper is extending the influences of individuality upon these peer sharing and how this facilitates interactions in contemporary accommodation. So where some types of um, student accommodation might focus um, us on these sort of fairly soft structural regulations, there may also remain ample opportunities to explore how such spaces may affect the emotional relationships that are negotiated between these sharers. So in terms of friendship, friendship is crucial in, in developing meaningful and lasting interactions in shared living arrangements. 
The context of peer sharing encourages new ways of considering and understanding friendship by examining the contrasting ways in which friendships are produced, are performed and are negotiated through shared interactions. Bowlby, for example, argues that friendship is, quote, a key aspect of patterns of sociability that recognises or not so, um, solidarities and communal belongings, end of quote. Friendships are commonly built upon trust, activity and communication, and the common practices that produce of these friendships among these different friendship groups. Yet friendship networks are complex, they're fluid, they're temporal, they sometimes have ephemeral qualities that make them difficult to spatially contain. And as this side suggests here, that friendships can also be quite paradoxical spaces, shifting between the virtual and the proximate, the stable and the fleeting, the emotional and the material. So the work I'm working on here in terms of these sorts of friendships um, responds a lot to Banalatel's call for more critical investigations of the formation, significance and spatiality that constitutes young people's uh, geographies of friendships. For example, in the context of student friendships, Robertson argues that friendship is a vital component in the production of translocal subjectivities for those that are in mobility as they are enacting, uh, sorry, interacting with and within new social and learning environments. Notwithstanding, friendships are intrinsically relied to um, relationships with places and a process of placemaking and the ability to enact these social identities among what Fincher and Shaw suggest here as people like us. So, in the UK context, there's very much a tendency to think about these student housing biographies um, to follow this specific pattern of moving from home to halls to residential uh, rented houses and back again. And I'm kind of, my research, if anybody's followed it, contests quite a lot of these things. But I'm following this pattern as part of the research and to do with friendship. Students are very much characterised as being always in a state of mobility. They're always being characterised as not being from around here. Quite wrongly, I might add. There's some, a lot of research is suggesting that students are also much about their localities as well. Yet there are quite often disparities that exist. So yes, might, many first year students might live in halls, but they may equally, um, equally reside in privately rented student housing with their families or in their own homes in various different um, living circumstances. I'm very, very much interested in this idea of these, of these um, student halls as a, as a site for these things. So crucially, the, the rise put my teeth in. Sorry. Crucially, the rise of student halls of residences can be linked to this neoliberalisation of the higher education sector. It's again quite a crucial point. With this increased pressure to commodify the student experience through the marketisation of student halls of residence. So the idea of creating purpose-built student accommodation to house large numbers of students. For example, private uh, sector halls have been worth in the last year approximately £5.8 billion. So it's a huge amount of money. This idea of marketising these things is worth a lot of money to developers and a lot to the higher education um, sector. So one of the ways that we can witness this is through these large-scale accommodation projects that have become almost ubiquitous in most university towns and cities, not just in the UK but across the world. And I would argue then there's a creation of what we might call vertical studentification through this concentration of students in high-rise blocks, so removing them from traditional uh, residential areas where they might live in houses and starting to place them in things like this. 
I'm using an example here of a current development that's going on in Plymouth. This is called Beckley Point. It's a 21-storey, £21 million development with 507 rooms. This is not just for Plymouth University. This has been um, built by the Student Housing Company. It's here for the three universities that are placed in Plymouth. So uh, Plymouth University, uh, the University of St. Mark's and St. John's, and um, the, uh, oh God, what's one of the other one? The Plymouth College of Art, I should know that. Um, it's going to be the tallest building in the southwest outside of Bristol, which is quite a significant thing to think that will be a piece of student accommodation. This has been described by our local newspaper, the Plymouth Herald, um, as this creeping skyline of student accommodation. This idea that these things are kind of uh, starting to drift into towns and cities without really being um, contested that much. And this idea that perhaps maybe of starting to draw students away from the more traditional rented student housing market by encouraging them perhaps to stay and remain in halls of residence after their first years. It become the, the normal practice for students to live in those spaces. In terms of halls, um, Hubbard in 2009 has suggested that um, they have benefits, that halls are viewed as the primary site for the mixing and socialisation of students and are important for friendship development, providing a sheltered transition from home into university. Halls are seen as being ideal locations for the acquisition of social and cultural capital, uh, be that the right side of cultural capital or um, indeed necessarily the wrong stuff as well. Um, they're useful spaces for informing subsequent residential moves. They might help students understand better the rules of the student game and how to progress through future accommodation choices even beyond university. <coughs> They often provide the first opportunities to test independence and interdependence away from home and away from this parental gaze, but they also may become complicated and contested spaces by virtue of containing these multiple and contrasting identities. And I think that's probably why I was asking you some of those questions, Debbie, that these things, students aren't necessarily coming to these processes as equals. They're coming in um, quite often with different hierarchies. So in terms of the Plymouth context, we have uh, six university-owned halls of residences um, within Plymouth, and we have eight large-scale purpose-built um, halls projects that have gone on. They're not all placed on this, um, on this map, and the current one that I told you about, Beckley Point, is currently situated around about this area through here, so it's right in the, sort of, the centre of the, of the city. Um, we have offering about sort of 3,000 bed spaces in total to our students. And Plymouth has one of the highest concentrations of first year intake um, across, the, across the country. We have about six to 7,000 um, students coming in the first year every year. So taking out perhaps the 26% of students that might not live um, in student accommodation, there's still a lot of pressure on these, uh, on these bed spaces to, to be able to fit these students in them. Um, I'm talking about large-scale developments in terms of those that can contain more than 100 bed spaces. Um, but Plymouth also contains a large number of um, very small privately rented halls as well. And these are quite often directed towards postgraduate students and international students. So including the Beckley Point development I spoke about just now, there are several other major developments underway that are comprising <coughs> approximately another 1,500 more bed spaces that will be arriving in the next year to 18 months. So again, a significant amount of, of opportunity here. What I also want to, to talk about in terms of the study that I've done um, is that there's a, a variant range in the variety of the morphology of these spaces. They're not all designed in exactly the same way. So 
Some students may have access to dedicated common rooms, for example, in their halls of residence. Not all do. Some are confined to their kitchens to have their communal spaces or may have to take their communal areas outside. Um, some will have in their communal spaces, in, the, um, in their halls, just a basic kitchen with no seating areas. Others, like this one over here, which is Alexandra Works, have uh, perhaps maybe sofas, bar stools, a table to sit at. So there's very, very uneven access to these things. And quite often students aren't aware of this before they actually set up and enrol and, and come into, um, into living in these halls of residences. So it's very much this idea that they're placed into the situation and have to try and make good of it. So in terms of my research, the research I was doing threw up three questions for me, and I'll put them all up here at the moment. So what I'm really thinking about are how friendship networks might be co-produced in and through the spaces of shared accommodation. I'm thinking about what certain ways friendships might inform other social networks that stretch beyond these shared spaces, so maybe it might be informing things that move out of the hall. And then, subsequently, how these external friendships might be managed and incorporated or not back into these shared spaces. So there's these different sort of configurations of people, of, of space, and the ways in which these things might be configured together um, in different ways to produce these ideas of, of meaningful and useful friendships. The theoretical framework that I'm going to be working on, I'm going to touch on here because I want to return to it again at the end. Um, I'm not going to make it a theoretical paper for, for, this, um, for this process, but the idea I'm looking at is this notion that Massey, Doreen Massey came up with in 2005 of thrown togetherness. And this has been used before by Anderson et al. to, to talk about uh, campus spaces. I'm thinking about this a little bit more critically. So um, Massey really sort of suggests about this idea of um, thrown togetherness being this place that it's an ever-shifting constellation of trajectories that may set us down next to the unexpected neighbour. So the idea that we're placed into locations and situations where we have to kind of make and form connections with people that we may not necessarily be expecting to make connections <coughs> and interactions with. And this speaks quite well to these ideas of halls of residences, where often students may come up with some ideas about where they might want to live, but might not necessarily end up in the situation they were thinking about. <coughs> Ooh, no, I've done the wrong thing. Oh, I'm pressing the wrong buttons now. So we can have quite a lot of implications for this. So as Anderson um, et al are talking about in, um, in the context of student halls and in um, uh, halls, sorry, um, uh, students unions and things, talking about these implications that might be involved in mixing these students together in halls. So what kinds of issues might we um, be creating by doing some of these things? And that's going to be quite an important uh, way of starting to problematise some of these processes. So, in terms of my data, so the first question that I'd asked, that I posed, was how are friendship networks co-produced in and through the spaces of shared accommodations? That's the first thing I'm going to start looking at. First of all, I'm going to turn to Gary's flat here uh, to start to consider the ways through which the morphology of his hall might facilitate certain expressions of friendship. So Gary's quote suggests here, we use the notice board as a way of personalising the kitchen. I mean, you can't stick stuff up on the wall, so it's hard. You can make it yours, though. It's nice to draw pictures and messages to each other. So they use this space here, this, um, uh, this notice board, as a way of expressing that conviviality and, um, and sort of identity that they have together. So as I said earlier, 
Many studies might adopt uh, Giddens's notion of the pure relationship to explain these complex interactions between sharers. Giddens here is arguing that individuals enter into emotional relationships solely for whatever rewards that relationship can thus deliver. Yet this very sort of cold classificatory understanding of relationships, while focusing on the mobilities of people's trajectories through postmodern lifestyles, perhaps really overconflates the self as the driving force for such movements and neglects these messy interactions that occur once individuals pause or settle in place. So instead, in terms of the participants within the study that I conducted, these halls acted as kind of micro-publics, uh, spaces that provided opportunities for sharers to use their flats in ways that forge connections rather than reinforcing silos. So they're actually being able to try and um, forge these connections with one another rather than trying to please themselves apart and get to know people that are exactly like them. The configuration of public-private within these halls of residences played a part in how these interactions were negotiated through the different types of facilities available and the layouts, as I've, I've mentioned in the earlier slides. So here, in terms of the use of the whiteboard as the communicative tool and the um, display of communal items such as the sweet caddy that we've got down here, which I've managed to very cleverly put my quote over, um, really show that flatmates were encouraged to share. They were really, really encouraging to this sort of process of sharing with one another. So while this personalisation in halls might be viewed as vandalism, um, so creating these unhomely homes, I think the small-scale placemaking activities that Gary's uh, flat were doing here were very vital in, in placing these friendships within what might be seen as quite often stark and institutionalised spaces. So following on from Gary's example, uh, Sophie and um, her experience with her flat further demonstrates how friendship can rely upon the placement of ephemeral items around the flat and the sort of repurposing of certain other items. What we might want to consider to be the small but significant actions of resistance against the structures that are, are, are catered in the hall. So Sophie's quote here suggests we can use those, so the fridge magnets that are on the fridge here, to write stupid messages to each other. God knows what the cleaners must think. Um, this quote really sort of problematises some of the approaches to homemaking. So Silver, for example, talks of homemaking as being either a functional, um, sort of non-aspirational, or an evolving, like an accumulating resource process. So while it may be expected that halls should fall into the former category of being a very non-aspirational space, due to their often um, institutionalised layout, we might actually consider them to be simultaneously both of these things, taking on the practicality of a formalised space coupled with traces of these different social encounters. And this could be down to things like alcohol bottles, um, games that are set out on tables, notes that are left to each other, doodles placed on fridges or on, on notice boards. So through these friendship <coughs> negotiations, the silly notes on Sophie's fridge, uh, the doodles on Gary's board, we can see examples of what Watkins might um, describe as the repurposing of functional household items to become sites of self-expression and of friendship expression. So these doodles then are examples of group homemaking in shared spaces built through the more aspirational becoming identities of friends. So in terms of the second question that I posed, in what way do friendships inform other social networks that stretch beyond the materiality of shared spaces, I want to examine some of the more effective and emotional ways that the participants expressed their friendship in their shared spaces. So here this could be found in the in-jokes inserted by flatmates which acted as reminders of their collective friendship group identities. 
So this can be found in the, in the quote by Robert, which I'll show you now, uh, from the flat that he shared with his, with his housemates. He was saying, you won't get this here, but all the spiders stuck around the kitchen are called Philip. We have these little details and little quirks and everyone's just kind of stuck to it. I have no idea why these things are called Philip. He never, never went into that um, and I felt really uncomfortable with asking him. So we were kind of left that where it was. So what I'm getting at here is that more than just personalising, some of the participants were using these expressions of friendship to also exhibit quite exclusionary tactics for marking out their identities. This is evidence of what Chatterton might call exclusive geographies through different forms of self-segregation and how this can be written into the material structure of the students' flats. So students may use their friendships to mark out territories, establishing who belongs and, really importantly, who doesn't belong. And so in my, terms of my final question, how are external friendships managed and incorporated or not back into shared accommodation? we might want to start to consider the complex negotiations of public and private spaces within these halls' environments. What Gibson might describe um, as the front and back of house um, uh, boundaries that exist in these spaces. So whilst halls might essentially be very private living spaces for these students, they're often a contradictory mix of staff and friends that access these spaces. So it could be cleaners that are coming in to access, it could be wardens or residents association uh, staff, it could be uh, other friends or flatmates that are here. And so this conflict, this uh, contrasting tessellation of people that move around in these spaces really start to problematise how they might be interpreted by people. So Peter's quote here implies that others may be welcome in terms of using hall spaces to perhaps socialise. So he's suggesting that quite often a night out will start here in the kitchen because we have the biggest kitchen in the block. Everyone will come over and we will play some music and pre-drink. It's great having a place where we can do that. So in some instances this was expressed through a sense of bragging about which flats had the most appropriate spaces to start nights out or to socialise, to study, to have movie nights, whatever. From this, though, we can see that these participants might value the interweaving of proximity, intimacy and closeness in terms of their flats. So they might want to value these things and show these things off to some of their friends. Here, the capacity for friendship networks to form within the flat depended on a range of structural factors. So this could be the access to functioning communal spaces, the provision of shared facilities and the shared desire to interact within these facilities in complementary ways. So, for example, one of the, um, the um, halls of residence that I focused on had a dedicated common room that three of the people that I interviewed didn't even realise existed. They just walked past it every single day as they went in and out of the block. They just didn't speak to them. So often these things weren't necessarily functioning for them once they were there. To problematise this though, we might say that this might not necessarily be the case for all of the students involved. So as Scott here um, suggests, some flats use their friendships as these mechanisms to sustain some form of privacy. So he's suggesting that our kitchen is a private space for us and our friends that we invite in. If we don't know them, then we'd rather not let them stay here. It's our space. He really emphasised that idea of it being our space. So we might want to explain this using uh, Bowlby's discussion of co-presence as a way of understanding these things, arguing that by bringing others into the home, we're inviting guests to share our most intimate private identities. This becomes potentially complicated in shared settings and can create what we might call an embarrassment of co-presence, whereby students retreat into their bedrooms away from the, uh, the, um, uh, the more sort of public areas of, of the shared spaces. 
I would say, though, as a caveat, this wasn't as evident in my accounts in my, from my participants. And they were quite sort of egalitarian about the ways in which they used these spaces. So their sort of co-present friendships actually contributed towards these collective group identities in some ways to be quite good and, and sort of um, drawing people in, in others to be quite exclusive and to be shutting others out. So this consolidation of the group through uh, which others were discouraged from entering the flat, so creating these perhaps sort of boundaries around these spaces. So as I said, in terms of this session, I wanted to sort of briefly outline some of the practical considerations that we might want to take from this um, and how we can think about um, sort of placing friendship and understanding friendship as a, a sort of well-being thing. So as Brooke says here, um, <coughs> halls might be deemed to be these sort of key sites for the development of friendship networks and may often be the first geographical space that many students will encounter potentially meaningful relationships outside of social media. So it might be the, the option that when they come to university and are plonked in their hall might be the first time they actually interact physically with those that are around them. We might also think about halls being these um, sort of having these complex differences in the ways in which friendship might be produced and managed in shared living environments, with this contradictory mix of the public and the private in these different spaces, and how these might produce different forms of friendship that could be determined upon the dynamics of the flat. So it's not something that's going to stay constant all the way through, there could be fluctuations, things could go wrong in flats, and they often did within, uh, within my study. There might be a, a, a big issue that might have been uh, blown up between flatmates that somebody didn't take the rubbish out or might have left things on the side. Um, and so it just creates this idea of having to uh, rethink and reevaluate these friendships as they're, as they're progressing through. Quite often within my research, because the students were coming towards the end of their study, um, they were very sort of honest about their friendships with the people they lived with. So I really, really enjoyed living with such and such, but I won't live with them again next year. I'd much rather move on to live with somebody else because they're really messy or they play their music too loud. But they can really recognise the fact that the friendship is still quite a vital component to that. So linked to this is the notion that the connections made in share flats may be present um, and utilised at the micro scale of the flat, but might also not necessarily extend to other flats, blocks or even halls. And they might create very specific sets of friendship networks that are geographically contained. So quite often those that were living in these spaces, they had various different sets of friends. They didn't necessarily always bring them together. So they had their course mates, they had the people they lived with, they might have had friendship groups on different floors. But they struggled quite often to bring them all together into a, into a social grouping. They were worried that these things might not necessarily work. So from this we might want to start to consider how these interconnections that are established in halls might influence and be influenced by other social sites on campus and beyond. So we're thinking about the different sort of spaces of education. So perhaps bad experiences in halls might impact upon how students might consider future living experiences. It might affect well-being, it might affect different forms of engagement. Um, and that has been something that I'm a, a stage tutor within my, um, within my department. And quite often issues in halls will then impact on, on engagement with, uh, with learning as well. And then finally, within this... So this is sort of the, the policy recommendation, I suppose. We might want to draw on some broader policy directives here, whereby closer cooperation between universities, governments, housing providers, developers and students, and I put it in bold, 
um, in designing student accommodation might help contribute towards more equitable living spaces. And part of the impact of the, the research that I've had um, is that um, Residence Life, the team I worked for uh, when I did this, um, this study in, in Plymouth, have now started to take this up and are getting students involved in these things. Start to ask them, what is it you want? How would you like to design these sorts of processes? And they're trying to then reflect that back onto some of the developers like uh, the Student Housing Company and Unite and thinking about actually physically designing some of this stuff more equitably into their halls, so the right kind of sociable space for them. So, I've got two more slides. Am I okay for time? Ah, we've just got another minute. Perfect. Answer. Excellent. Yep. So, to bring this to a close, I want to return back to Massey's notion of thrown togetherness to make sense of how these student halls uh, might create these sorts of different convivial experiences. Uh, while Anderson et al. argue that um, togetherness might have implications for the mixing of students in halls, my analysis problematizes this term to recognize some of the agency involved in how and why student flatmates might seek out friendship with one another. So I'm going to draw here on Hannah Pitt's notion of bringing togetherness to soften out some of the violence of being thrown together and to start to consider a role for more deliberate place shaping. Hence, as Edensor et al. argue here, that places are not wholly unpredictable as spatial processes often follow rhythmic patterns. It's quite key to, to, to understanding that. So in terms of my closing thoughts, so rather than offering a concrete conclusion, I'm providing these closing thoughts to sort of start to follow some of Bunnell et al.'s uh, call for recognising friendships as being this form of intimacy that appears increasingly important in our urbanising, mobile and interconnected worlds. So friendships can be seen as dynamic in that we might become friends with those we live with and or work with, making it hard to form clear distinctions between the different intimate encounters we have in different social and geographical scenarios. And then finally, we can also consider how particular friendships might be reproduced and performed through various social interactions that become written into the morphology of the home through physical placemaking and through more effective and emotional interactions. Thank you very much.